Well, I'd like to add my welcome to our new students and their families who have joined us for worship. And I greet you not as guests, but as fellow members of this church family. For each student and their families, by definition, becomes a member of this congregation. And so it is good to have you here as part of the University Church family this Sabbath day. For a few moments this morning, I wish to make a case for the Christian university. And you may know that this is the one time each year where we hear the same sermon. But you know, some things are good to do every year. It's interesting, uh, at Christmas you always leave with presents, on your birthday you always leave with cake, and each year when the 49ers play the Seahawks, they just leave sad. (laughs) But on this Sabbath, it is marked in our calendar as a day, Lord willing, that every one of us would leave in our stomachs, and our hearts, and our souls, with a renewed sense of the immeasurable significance of the Christian university. I wish to begin first by reflecting together on the condition of our world that we find ourselves in. Appropriate at the beginning of this academic year, a touch of a geography quiz that will launch us into this reflection. It's pictorial in nature, so have a look. Here's question number one. What are you looking at? This is Broadway in New York City. Or how about this? Question two. The Strip in Las Vegas. Number three. Champs-Élysées in Paris. Question four. There's a little bit of a cheat there on the side. Abbey Road in London. Question five. Very good. Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. Question six. Ah, very well done. Lombard Street in San Francisco. And finally. So, uh, I actually have some of College Avenue up here. This this is the authentic stuff right here. And uh, Freshmen, I want you to hear me for a second. This is the first exhortation from your pastor of the new school year. So, I'll admit, it's pretty easy to complain about this. Now, we're going to witness. My wife and I always say that it's great to see the before and the after like to watch that process, this school year is going to be a load of fun because we are going to watch the progression of College Avenue at the heart of our campus into something that the pictures are absolutely beautiful for what this is going to look like. So this is good that we get to experience that uh, together. But uh, here's the exhortation. It is easy for me, your pastor, to be like the Israelites who complained about the road not being so smooth. And they got slapped on the wrist a few times for that. But I've done some reflection recently, and I wonder, 
what would it be like if every time we cross this road, the dirt, the rocks, sometimes mud, the inconvenience, that we took a moment and reflected about the broken road of this world? What if every time you, just, just for a moment, a short prayer, asking God to break your heart a little bit for the incredible inconvenience that sin has brought, displacing people in this world? What would it be like if College Ave turned into a holy space for these weeks that remind us of the place that we live in? and the condition that human beings find themselves in on this planet. I wonder. We live on a broken road. We've seen stories of the refugees in Syria and other places. No doubt some of you have witnessed that photograph. The young Syrian boy, Ilan Kurdi, just three years old, here he is. But then this almost impossible to look at photograph. A little boy, through no fault of his own, the victim of drowning, washed ashore. We live in a broken world. I was talking just days ago with a father of this congregation, and some of you will know to whom I refer grieving for his daughter, his young daughter, dying of cancer. I talked to other friends in this community, their business being destroyed through no fault of their own. And you know what the language was? We're walking a broken road. Another story in this community of little children being regularly abused by their parents, a broken road. Families and communities, as a society, this is the world we find ourselves in. And so perhaps we should be reminded of those wonderful words from the 40th chapter of Isaiah, pointing to John the Baptist, to Jesus, and certainly a call to every one of us from Luke chapter 3, our mission. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. Eugene Peterson interprets the passage this way, Make the road smooth and straight. Every ditch will be filled in, every bump smoothed out, the detours straightened out, all the ruts paved over. Everyone will be there to see the parade of God's salvation. That's it. This is the mission for Christians in a broken world. It is our task to smooth the way that people might discover the riches of Jesus Christ. And we do this road work, every one of us in this room, both through what we have to say and through what we do with our hands. 
And so in this context, a broken world, a meaning and a purpose, a function that we have to smooth that road, that people might come into the embrace of the God of Jesus Christ, we consider the Christian university. We consider Walla Walla University. I'd like to make the case from four places this morning, from Scripture, from church history, from sociology, and finally, from testimony. First, from Scripture, from the Bible. The question, how is it that God sought to smooth the road of broken times in our world's history? First, in the Old Testament, the classic case, the horrors of Babylon. You remember that God's people are taken captive into this horrific regime. And so the question becomes, what is it that God wishes for his people to do while they are in captivity in Babylon? Well, we don't have to guess. For the prophet Jeremiah, writing from Jerusalem, sends this word to the captives in Babylon, the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those, notice, I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It is God who has taken them into Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Fascinating. God's word to his faithful people in the middle of Babylon is not get out of Babylon. Instead, God says, step up to the plate, bless the socks off your community, invest in it, be salt and light where I have planted you. And of course, the four most famous of those captives, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it's amazing what God provides for these four men. Notice Daniel 1, verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. Do you see it? Not only did these young men have a rich education in the ways and means of Yahweh, but it is God who provides for them a kind of higher education that they might be successful influencers in their world. And so Daniel, in the capital city, is able to stand up and say things like this, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Daniel has the confidence of those at the very highest levels of government, of leadership in Babylon, 
Not only does he have this great education in the ways of Yahweh, but he has skills and abilities that they appreciate. Have you ever found it amazing that Daniel ends up at the highest levels of the government of Medo-Persia? Has that ever struck you as strange? One dictatorship goes down to another regime, and there's a carryover. That rarely happens in a democracy. From one dictatorship to the next, Daniel is so prized that he is trusted in the new government. Daniel and his friends, planted in Babylon, given a kind of godly, or might we say Christian, higher education that they might influence their world. Now we find something similar in the New Testament. You may know that Christianity was born in a very difficult time, the reign of the Caesars, the Roman Empire. Violent, brutal, a very rough road. So how is it that God purposes that the Christian movement will explode onto the scene in such an inhospitable place? Well, after the ascension of Jesus, he makes yet another appearance. This to a man going down a road. A man who has the highest level of education in the Jewish system, who also, we will learn, can speak with credibility in Athens, in Rome, in Jerusalem, about politics and sports and economics and sociology and literature and trade and religion. A man who has great credibility in many places throughout the empire. And of course, I'm referring to the Apostle Paul, who humbly recognizes this incredible education he's been given. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Highest level of education in the ways of Yahweh, high level of education in the world that he lived in, and he sees, ah, I can negotiate a wide range of circumstances that the gospel might move forward. Paul gets a solid Christian higher education. And you think, well, Paul's sort of the outlier, isn't he? But notice in that same letter to the church at Corinth, this little phrase, he says, I urge you to imitate me. Paul's not the outlier, he is the prototype. The biblical record, my friends, is strong. How is it that God wishes to make smooth the rocky road of this world? In the Old Testament, Christian higher education, if you will. In the New Testament, Christian higher education. Human beings whose purpose it is to bless the places where they have landed. Case number two, church history. George Knight, the Adventist historian, notes that in the first several decades of the movement's beginning, the focus was quite internal. Questions were asked like, who are Adventists? How are we unique? What do we believe? 
But then through the promptings of a prophetic voice, it was time for the church to grow up, to mature, to make a rich difference in the world. And so a new set of questions settled in. What does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to bless and change the world? How are we to be human? And with this fresh evidence came a couple of things. One, night notes, a whole new brand of literature streaming from the pen of a woman by the name of Ellen White. Books about Jesus, steps to Christ, thoughts on the man of blessing, desire of ages, Christ object lessons, ministry of healing. This new writing designed to push the church forward. But beyond that, it's in this period, notable, that we find the rise of something in the Advent movement. Christian education. Look at this data, number of Adventist elementary schools. In 1895, there were just 18 Seventh-day Adventist elementary schools in the whole world. Five years later, 220. In 1905, just five years later, 417. And by 1910, 594. 33 times the number of schools that had been in existence just a decade and a half ago. I mean, think for a moment. If we took on as a mission, we're going to multiply by 33 today. So by the year 2030, we're going to dramatically grow the sweep of Adventist Christian education in the world. Astonishing. But also during this period where the focus was on changing the world, the birth of something, higher education, beginning with Andrews University, one institution after the next, after the text next emerged, exploding on the scene with the purpose of training young men and women to go out and to transform the globe to which they had been planted. I do need to apologize again this year. I noticed that I did not correct the, that Walla Walla University, again, is a little bit brighter than all the others. And um, <laughs> we've got to check that for next year. I'm not sure why I didn't correct that. But uh, I guess some things just happen. An explosion of higher education. Astonishing. Knight summarizes this period so well. In just a few words, he says, the Christocentric revival. And oh, by the way, the only true revival is always Christocentric. It's always a movement of Jesus. Any other revival is not true Christian revival. A Christocentric revival. Jesus is everything in the denomination's theology. Had led to a spiritual revival in its educational program, accompanied by a clear vision for educational purpose. In an era when the Seventh-day Adventist Church said, we're not worried about hiding out and remaining distinct in our own little cave, but rather it is clear that we must go out and bless the world in this era 
the birth of Christian higher education, the birth of Seventh-day Adventist higher education with the purpose of being fully Jesus-centric, training young people to go change the Babylons and the Romes that they were living in at that time. It's instructive, isn't it? Powerful. The case is strong from Scripture. Equally strong from church history. Third, how about sociology? I think one of the better books of the last few years, Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point, perhaps you've read it. His research, how is it exactly that something takes off? A new idea, a product, a business, something just skyrockets. What are the factors in, involved in making that happen? And Gladwell explores a number of reasons, uh, but among them, something he calls the law of the few. The law of the few. Gladwell says that there are just some people who have the ability to spur things on more than others. This doesn't mean that some people are more valuable uh, inherently than other people. It's just a sociological reality that we understand. And he categorizes this uh, group, the law of the few, in three ways. Uh, first, he notices that they are connectors. These are people, he says, that have great social intelligence. They're able to build human networks effectively. Second, uh, a category he calls uh, mavens, a Yiddish word which means a particular skill has been developed. And finally, salesmen, saleswomen. These are folks that have great communication skills. They have the ability to persuade. Now again, Gladwell's not saying these human beings are more valuable than anybody else. He's just recognizing that there are certain people that just can move things forward in a way that everyone cannot. Now, this is one of my favorite parts of the sermon every year. Let's just play with this idea a little bit about what this might mean. So I want you to imagine for a second the great cellist Yo-Yo Ma. Let's suppose that he becomes a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And he decides upon invitation to join the music faculty of Walla Walla University. Now, just thinking sociologically for a second, what do you suppose would happen to those that desire to take music at this place? I think it would go through the roof. Or how about this? It, Mark Zuckerberg became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian and joined our communications department. Can you imagine how long the line might be to get into that program? Or how about this? Jurgen Klinsmann, the head coach for the United States national soccer team. Let's say, he's like, man, I love Eastern Washington. And he became head coach of the Walla Walla University Wolves soccer team. I wonder what would happen to that team. Or imagine uh, the great order John Ortberg joined the School of Theology here. Or J.K. Rowling um, became an Adventist Christian and joined the English department. Or Bill Gates came a Christian and said, man, I really want to teach business there at Walla Walla University. Or, of course, always, every year, just to be fair, Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> and that happens every year, too. Uh, <laughs> with her communication ability, 
with her network, with the rich skills that she has developed, a, a, a real education, became a Christian, and also became senior pastor of the Walla Walla University Church. <laughs> it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't hurt my feelings in the least. Well, maybe a little, it does just a little bit. Uh, to know, sociologically speaking, under the power of the Holy Spirit, of what someone of that education and ability could do for the kingdom of God. Now, let me say it again. This is not about that these people are more valuable than those kinds of people. It is just a sociological observation that we make that education matters. And so freshmen, new students, as you develop the ability to connect through social intelligence on this campus, as you become mavens with particular skills that you learn from your professors, and as you become salesmen and saleswomen, that is, you learn how to effectively communicate through your experiences here. You're preparing not only to have a great career, but when married with a calling from God, you're about the tipping point. You're the law of the few. You have the ability to make a difference in a way that you would not had you not invested in this experience. Higher education first. Scripture, the case is strong. Church history, the case is strong. Sociology, the case is strong. Finally, testimony. Some of you will know that this is uh, the moment in the sermon where I always talk about my parents. Uh, in fact, this is a picture my brothers and I, this is I think at the Cheesecake Factory in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, we celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary this year. And I was reminded again, they have lived in Asheville, North Carolina for 43 years. They are a pastor's dream. They volunteer for a mission in the community. They've built a community services center. They've traveled in mission internationally. They give generously. They are so involved at being salt and light through their local congregation in that community. They have been blessing the socks off their world for almost half a century. And for my brothers and I, we see that. It's like, wow, incredible. But then my mind goes to this reality about them. My father, a 1964 graduate, biology, Columbia Union College, one of those schools founded in that important era. My mom, 1964 graduate, School of Nursing, Columbia Union College. Later, 1968, my father graduated the Loma Linda University School of Medicine, practiced pediatrics now for half a century, blessing the lives of children in his community. Sometimes when I go home, I open up those uh, yearbooks and blow off the dust and the must, and I see pictures of my young parents uh, before children, young and they're in the band, and they're in the choir, they're in student government, they're in this club and that one taking this class, and soaking in, apparently, 
all of the glories of Christian higher education in their day. And I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm not the dullest either. And I've got to tell you, I see the connection between a rich Christian education and a lifetime of productive service. Powerful. But we don't have to go far, do we? Oh, we could read names all day, but I'm going to give you quite a list. Graduates of this institution. Oh, just a few. Give me a moment or two. Andrea Hawkins, Derude, a 2005 Walla Walla University graduate studying brain cancers and developing better treatment plans using her mathematical skills, living in Renton, Washington. Sheldon Paris, serving as vice principal of Newberry Park Adventist Academy, guiding and mentoring high school students in California, a 2010 graduate of this place. Yeshua Chan, a 2000 graduate, serving as vice president and CFO at Washington Adventist Hospital. Carl Hafner, preaching the gospel in Kettering, Ohio, and around the world. Chris Oberg, preaching the gospel in Riverside, California, and around the world. Irving Bassanya is a 2008 mathematics graduate, the youngest medical student to attend the University of Texas in history, and currently an ENT resident at Vanderbilt University. Ben Blood, a 2007 graduate documentary photographer in Seattle, telling stories and advocating for social justice with his work. Richard Hart, president of Loma Linda University, a 1966 graduate of this place. Carrie Heinrich, a 1980 graduate, CEO of Loma Linda University Medical Center. Sarah Innocent, just down the road, teaching math to high school students in our own community, a 2014 graduate in mathematics. Jason Wells in North Carolina, a healthcare leader. Doug Thompson, a 1993 graduate living in Ohio, adapting aviation technology to better serve the needs of the world. Carl Canwell, a 2008 graduate, producing quality content as the director of creative media at Loma Linda University Health. Lisa McGill Vargas, a pediatrician, serving the great physician in San Antonio, Texas, a 2004 graduate. Paul Rasmussen, researcher, professor, author, mentor, museum creator, distinguishing her life in the fields. 1982 graduate of this institution. Ken also, a 1997 graduate, leading his team in excellence and innovation at Boeing in Washington. Armelma Wisa Niza, a graduate student now at Mercer University in Atlanta, working on a master's in accounting and business administration. Lauren Ressler, 2014 graduate, testing products and solving problems for Nike in Oregon. Michael Cruz, former lieutenant governor of Guam and a Bronze Star Medal awardee, serving his community in Guam, a 1980 graduate of this blessed school. Phyllis Atkins, a 1957 graduate, blazing trails as the first woman to serve as a judge on the federal court bench in Nevada. Cass Anderson, teaching and serving in Guyana for Gospel Ministries International. Philip Phillips, a 1979 graduate, professor of theoretical condensed matter physics at the University of Illinois. Megan Pardee, developing new products for Columbia Sportswear, a 2008 graduate. Royland Palmer Coleman, working for UCLA Health. Christa Maravilla, 2012 graduate, an MBA, working as an internal auditor at Adventist Health. And finally, some of you will know him, David Wagner, a 2000 graduate who just yet again 
proclaimed champion if the United States Open quad doubles. A multiple-time world champion ranked number one in the world in his sport, inspiring people about what is possible, even through great difficulties. And I have read you a long list, but perhaps not long enough. For the light, my friends, that comes out of this place. I've been using a phrase, walla walla, it's on the road to everywhere to everywhere. Oh, our testimony can be strong from Scripture, from history, from sociology, and from our testimony. My friends, fellow Christians, we can print up pamphlets and books. We can devise this evangelism strategy and that one. We can come up with this initiative and that, and all of that is fine and good. But for my money, and I hope for yours. Let us invest in Christian education, for it produces not a moment of light, but a lifetime shining around the world until that great day when that great light comes to celebrate with us the reclamation of all things, the smoothing of every road, and we shall walk on those great streets of gold together, my friends. But in the meantime, let us be about this sacred work together. Amen and amen.